0: Our text this morning is Hebrews 12:1 and 2, and we'll probably touch a little bit of verse 3. So let's read our text. And our sermon title—I hate sermon titles. I'm horrible at it. How the renowned crowd around is profound. I know it's lame. Anyway, verse 1: Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." Dove hunting, dove hunting. I think it's by far one of the most fun things to do on the planet. It's different than deer hunting. Deer hunting, you got to be quiet. Turkey hunting. You can't smell like anything. They'll see you coming a mile away. Dove hunting, you can drink your Gatorade, joke to your friend, and those dumb birds are still going to fly. It's a community experience. And really, if, if you've been dove hunting, you know that the bigger the field, the better. But the more hunters, the better as well. If you have sparse hunters, those, those dove are not going to fly, and there's nothing worse than being at a dove hunt and seeing dove across the field uh, as sitting ducks. But in a large field, you can cheer one another on. Um, You can see the dove all flying and cheer when someone gets one. Not unlike this is the scene before us in the book of Hebrews. It's a divine dove hunt, as it were. This morning, half of our time, we're going to dig into the Scriptures, and then half of our time, we're going to go on from there, and we're going to talk about uh, this cloud that is surrounding us. And so I'm impatient to get to the second half of the message. The author of Hebrews, he has just presented us with a who's who in the Old Testament. Not everyone is mentioned. He, the writer says there wouldn't be time if I mentioned everyone. Our writer says that it's as if it's the, these saints, were just mentioned are surrounding us. They're currently surrounding us. It's as if the life were a race, and these Old Testament saints that are mentioned in chapter 11 were previous participants in that same race, but they're, it's different. They're not our rivals. They're not trying to take our prize. They finish their race. They form into the crowd, and they cheer us on. So the writer, he purposefully calls them witnesses. He doesn't call them participants, even though that's that's what we see. Each of those believers of faith ran this race and then become part of this crowd. They are now the witnesses to the event and cheering on those that remain in this race. These witnesses, or martyrs is the actual word here, uh, in the original. These are the examples of faith. Some had to even give their lives like actual martyrs, we see at the end of chapter 11. But they're not just spectators, they are testaments to God's faithfulness. And that's why it's such an encouragement to us. Therefore, they hold a twofold purpose they testify to God's faithfulness to us, and they're spectators urging us on cheering us on as examples in the faith they become our greatest cheerleaders but in all these examples Jacob Isaac uh, Abraham Moses everyone who's mentioned and uh, uh, those who aren't mentioned look at back at verse uh, chapter 11 verse 39 the writer of hebrews says, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better through their faith. Or, excuse me, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, the writer of Hebrews tells these Hebrew Christians, because remember, it's called Hebrews for a reason. The writer is writing to Hebrew Christians in the first century, Although these Old Testaments were approved by their faith and they uh, gained such eminence by their faith that we and the Hebrew Christians and we, by extension, enjoy much more privileges than they did. How are we different? We see the entire plan of God. They didn't. They saw just a, a tiny glimpse. They had faith surely in God, but they didn't understand the plan of salvation. They didn't understand exactly how their sins were going to be dealt with. And so the the writer of Hebrews says that we actually are different because we actually saw the Christ come. We even have the details of the end of the age when we will experience full salvation. You say, full salvation? Wait a minute, do I only have half? Well, we are still in this body of sin, aren't we? Full salvation, obviously, when we put our trust in Christ, our past, present, and future sins are forgiven. And then when God looks down on us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees um, Christ's righteousness to be sure. But when we talk about full salvation, one day, what does Paul say? This mortal will put on immortality, that we will discard this body of flesh, and we will get our resurrected bodies and experience full salvation where we're not tainted anymore by this body of sin. This is a privilege the Old Testament saints didn't know about. They had shadows of it, but we experience it and can see it. And so at the end of chapter 11, he says, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And this doesn't mean that their salvation depends upon um, us, but they trusted God, surely. But like Ephesians says, they were waiting for an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is when Christ comes and fulfills the law. And just as the Old Testament saints, they waited for Christ to come uh, and are now blessed there's an additional aspect where even the Hebrew Christians of the first century, they don't experience, they run this race, but they won't see full and complete blessedness until the end of the age like us. And so now we are currently running that race, and they have uh, become this cloud of witnesses as well, cheering us on. But we're told to run well. It's a long and arduous race and the smallest burden over time could hinder our way. Therefore, as a runner lays aside his heavy cloak in the first century, we are told to lay, away, lay aside the sin that could entangle us. And we're told to run with endurance. This is not a sprint. This is a, an endurance run. It is a distance run. And we're told, even though we're told about the surrounding witnesses, we're told to focus on our umpire, on the judge, on the coach who stands at the finish line. Focus on Him. And so Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it's, these are these amazing verses because they point back uh, to this, these witnesses that surround us. And the word cloud is purposefully chosen because it's as if uh, this cloud, as we're running, the clouds above us are our cheerleaders. They're surrounding us because they have gone on uh, to be in paradise, like when Christ ascended, waiting for the end of the age. But we're focused on our Lord. We're not focused on the cloud of witnesses. We are focused on our Lord. But He's not only the umpire, He's not only the judge of the event, but He's the one who stands and extends His hand for us uh, to draw strength and energy to actually do uh, to run the race. And really, he's unique from all of these examples of faith, because surely he ran the race as well, but he's unique. He has the perfect example of faith. But not only that, he is, as the Scripture says, he is the originator of our faith. He's unlike anyone who's pictured in Hebrews 11. He is actually the object of our faith. It's funny, um, we sang and heard so much Beethoven this morning. If you were to ask, what is Beethoven's greatest work, you might think of his fifth, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun, but you would be wrong. It's, it's his ninth. Um, it is a great musical masterpiece. Um, within it, at the end of it, is the Ode to Joy. It's the, the choral um, Ode to Joy they start singing at the end of Beethoven's Ninth. And we even, someone has even taken that music and set it to a hymn called, which we sing uh, today, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. But that's not the words in the original German. The words for the choral finale are actually penned by a, a German poet. So, along with the mastery of the music, We have this poem, but it's a very unique poem, and if you've never read it in translation, I I encourage you to. We don't have time to read it this morning, but we have time to read a little bit. Often this poem and Beethoven's Ninth is used to signify the brotherhood of all mankind, but that's not quite what's happening in Beethoven's Ninth, it's not saying, we're all brothers and sisters, and God is our father, and that's it. That's not what it says. It's a very unique message, and I, I want to explain this to you if you don't know. And after you go home today, uh, YouTube uh, choral finale of Beethoven's Ninth, and you'll hear it, and you'll, you'll hear it in German, and you'll hear this word at the beginning over and over, Freude, and, you know, you won't know what it is. It sounds like they're talking about Sigmund Freud, but it's not. Freude is the German word for Joy. And so Beethoven was uh, focused on joy. So the poem says, joy is a spark of the divine. That is, it comes straight from God himself to all mankind. And it's the joy that is common to all mankind. Whoever has a friend has experienced joy. If you find a spouse, you have found joy. And this is the same for the wicked and the righteous. We all experience the joy from God Himself equally. It is common grace that He gives to all creatures. This is what this poem says. And then finally, it turns and it says this, be embraced, millions, this kiss to all the world. Kiss meaning God Himself kisses all mankind with uh, the gift of joy. Brothers, look above the starry canopy. There must dwell a loving Father. Are you falling down before Him millions? Do you sense the Creator world? Seek Him above the starry canopy. Above stars must He dwell." Do you understand what's going on in this poem? He's trying to prove the existence of God by the common grace of joy. And because of that, he says, seek the Father above. If you experience joy on this earth, If you experience that with a friend or with a spouse, guess what? That proves there is a loving Father in heaven. Seek Him. It's a beautiful poem. It shows on a small level what flows from a loving Father as a catalyst for men and women to seek Him. But this is all joy on an earthly level. That's not the joy that's before us in our passage. We're told in verse 2 that, because of the joy set before him, endured the cross. It's more than just this common joy that we just talked about. This joy tells us about God's character. It tells us about Jesus Christ's willingness to submit himself to evil men. The joy set before him was of the completed work of Christ. Look in verse 11 of chapter 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The writer is going to go on and encourage us as Christians and the Hebrew Christians, us by extension, encourage them, as you see Christ has endured, you endure as well. Look at Him. He endured such hostility. It wasn't joyful at the time, but it seems sorrowful. But there is the hope of the joy in the completion of the work. That's what the writer's talking about. In the midst of suffering, there's hope of the joy at the end. This is the joy set before Christ. He had the hope of his finished work on the the cross. What amazing insight into God's love for us when you think about this. He had the hope at the end of this completed work to sit down and be the savior for all time, dispensing uh, repentance and remission of sins. That's the joy that he set before himself and endured the cross. That's the love and kindness of the Lord. And this hope of joy disarmed any current pain that he was experiencing. Verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you would not grow weary and lose heart. We are supposed to ponder that fact, the fact that God himself endured suffering but did so because of the joy of the completed work that he would dispense to us his grace. Think about the coming joy. Think about the hope of joy. Think about God's completing His work in you. When you go through suffering, it's not easy, but it's what we're told to do. This is why James later on says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Think about Christ and His joy of the completed work. Well, just as we have so many who have gone before us in the Old Testament, as the writer explains in chapter 11, we actually have Additionally, two thousand years of faithful saints uh, cheering us on—they become part of this cloud as will we in the future. They become spectators, cheerleaders, and testaments to God's faithfulness. And you know, sometimes we ignore this two thousand years, and sometimes we think we're just popped here, um, or that you know this this church or uh, the United States or some other country. You know, we. We, Christianity doesn't extend out of 100 years, but there's 2,000 years of faithful saints. 2,000 years. 2,000 years of pastors, 2,000 years of congregants, 2,000 years of people raising their families in the church. I grew up in a church where they told me, don't read the saints of the past. Their works are corrupt. Um, you know, you're better off just reading the Bible. And I... Obviously, we do well, and we should be studying, memorizing, and poring over the, our Bibles, but we also have 2,000 years of the collected wisdom of the saints that we can read. And while it's true, we should re, we, they're not on par with Scripture, but they are an amazing resource, and we can learn much from them. And so, in the time that we have left, I would like to talk about uh, a few of these saints. Uh, Like the writer of Hebrews, I quickly made a list of 50 that I'd like to go through, but we we would never get anywhere near that. And I think it's important to recognize this, that we are here because of an unbroken chain of God's faithfulness in continuing to save men and women. They've gone before us, they ran well, and now they are part of this cloud as well. So in God's providence, we can only be encouraged by one another in our current church, but we can actually be encouraged by the saints who have run before us. Clement of Rome. you probably heard his name before. Um, uh, Just to give you a little brief overview, we're probably gonna hit maybe 13 or 14. Uh, people, I just randomly picked them. They are not order, in order of precedence or anything. Clement was just a pastor in Rome. Very interesting guy. He wrote while John was on the island of Patmos. So John is on the island of Patmos receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ. Clement is pastoring in Rome. He's just a pastor. You know, you might hear him called a bishop, but that's just another word we have in the New Testament for pastor. You know, you could, you could say Bishop Dow if you wanted to. He probably won't like it, but, um, but that's all it means. When you hear, hear the word bishop, it just means overseer or pastor. So he wrote a book called First Clement. He wrote this book to Corinth, same church that Paul wrote to. Um, and you'll be interested to know that when Paul wrote to Corinth, he, remember he rebuked them for their sin. They actually repented and became a great faithful church. Clement writes to them later. They had done some things that he, wasn't, uh, that he corrected them for. Um, but if you read First Clement, it's a, it's a little long. It's ri- originally written in Greek, but it's very interesting. It reads like Scripture. He quotes so much Scripture that when you read it, it's just like a random collection of Scriptures linked together. But it's very interesting because we, d- we don't even get out of the first century before he writes this book. So he's so close to uh, the first-century church. Well, we have to skip ahead 300 years. Uh, There's just way too much. So there's, we could go through these, but we have no time. Cyprian is one of my favorites. Um, And I'm going to post this in the notes, so later on you can actually follow some of these links. Next slide. So St. Jerome. we cannot overstate the importance of St Jerome. You probably have heard his name, but he lived in the 4th century. He actually translated uh, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into Latin. And you say, "Well, who can read Latin?" Back then, that's all Greek started dying out. Latin became the lingua franca. That's what everybody spoke. So we cannot overstate the importance of Saint Jerome doing this, translating this work, because it put the Bible in the common man's hands, because everybody grew up learning Latin. He wrote lots of works, but again, we read these guys, and we don't blindly accept everything they say. He actually believed that after Mary uh, had Christ, she did not have any more children. We don't believe this. We this flies in the face of Scripture. Mark six three says, when they were talking about Christ, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Obviously, in the Scriptures, we see that Joseph and Mary had other children after Christ. Jerome didn't believe this. Well, we don't blindly believe everything that Jerome said. But He was a Christian, and he was a faithful man. Uh, So I think we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He was incorrect. We read all of them with a biblical eye. And during uh, while St. Jerome was translating the Bible from Hebrew into Latin and the Greek New Testament into Latin, St. Augustine was around. And what's very interesting is that St. Augustine, actually, we have his letters. So he writes a letter to St. Jerome and says, hey, I really like what you're doing with this translation. It's really good. And he says, I read the book of Job, and I love what you're doing by telling us uh, various insights of the Hebrew. Keep doing that, please. So it's very interesting that we get interactions. And this is ancient. This is the fourth century, 300 years removed from the first century. St. Augustine, if you've never read his Confessions, it tells his story of his conversion. It's it's just a really interesting book into his very soul. You you not only it's not a book of philosophy. It's not a book of theology. He just lays bare his soul and tells what struggles he had. I recommend it highly. He also wrote um, many other works. Uh, the City of God. It's huge. It's about three inches thick. Um, it looks a little daunting, but it's very interesting. What, what it was, was um, he wrote this work to Romans in order to convert them, because a lot of Romans still were not Christians. And it, what's interesting is that he wrote it after 410 AD, when the Visigoths had sacked Rome. And he says something very interesting. He says, hey, guys, you know, the Lord was merciful to you when uh, Rome was sacked. He judged you but only a little bit, and he gave you time to repent. So why don't you repent and embrace Christ? Again, we don't accept everything that St. Augustine has to say as gospel truth. We read his works with a biblical eye. He believed that it was okay to interpret Scripture allegorically. We do not. What does that mean? You take Christ's resurrection, the empty tomb. In front of the tomb was what? A big rock, right? The rock was rolled away. He believed it was okay to come to the Scripture and say, what does the rock represent? Well, it could represent our sin being rolled away. No, it's just a rack. It's it's a rock. That's all it is. So, if you come to Scripture, you can't just say this represents this, X represents Y, Y represents Z. You have to interpret Scripture in its context. Again, for sake of time, we leave behind men like Bede, Thomas Aquinas, Francis of Assisi, Thomas Akempis, John Huss. We have to fast forward um, 900 years or so. Martin Luther, you remember the Reformation was that time period where the Catholic Church became so corrupt that they would go from city to city and say, would you like to buy this? It's an indulgence. Well, what's an indulgence? Well, if you've sinned, that's okay pay us some money, and this is a get out of hell card free, get out of hell free card. Free card. <laughs> and you could present that at the time of your death, and you would get straight out of jail and go straight to heaven. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest at the time, studied, and as a result of his studies in the book of Galatians and Romans, actually became a Christian and knew that what the Catholic Church was teaching was incredibly false. And so he, you'll remember, he wrote the 95 Theses, which were 95 reasons why indulgences were wrong. He wrote many, many other works. He, Out of this time period is when men returned to Scripture because they had been uh, focused on the church and focused on what the church said rather than focused on what God said. And out of this time period came the five solas, the the five onlys, Uh, you know, saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by grace alone, and by Scripture alone. This is what we believe today. So they, they tried to reform the Catholic Church from the inside. Sadly, they did not and had to end up leaving. He eventually leaves the Catholic Church. He actually marries a former nun, uh, and they raise a family. But later on, he translates the Bible into German, which was a huge deal because, again, that's giving the common man the Scriptures in his hands where he can read them and be saved. He was condemned by the Catholic Church, um, and his works were, uh, were told to be burned. I still use Luther's commentaries to this day. John Calvin. He was around the same time as Luther. Uh, he's very similar to Martin Luther. He was a priest, turned reformer. Uh, Martin Luther was in Germany. John Calvin was in France, so his name is actually Jean. Um, but he his importance cannot be overstated either. He was scary smart. He wrote his Institutes, which was sort of a work that summarized the Reformers' beliefs when he was only 26 or so. But this book of theology flew in the face of Catholic doctrine, and so he as well was condemned by the Catholic Church. I have Calvin's commentaries whenever I'm studying the Scriptures. I open up his commentaries. They are invaluable. He was a very interesting and thorough scholar. And even if you're studying the Bible, just Google. Calvin's commentaries—you can find them online. They're very helpful. John Bunyan, ah, oh, not Paul Bunyan—that's someone different. John Paul Bunyan is, you know, 63x handles high, um, with his feet on the ground and his head in the sky. Um, no, John Bunyan. John Bunyan is—he's that great. He wasn't a reformer. He was different. See, at this time. What's very interesting is that you had Protestants, and then you had what could be called nonconformists. The Church of England had already broken away away from the Catholic Church. John Bunyan was a preacher in England, but he was an unlicensed preacher. He was not part of the Church of England. He didn't believe the things that the Church of England believed, so he met in separate uh, worship uh, in in homes, in separate worship uh, places. He was eventually put in jail for 12 years for it. In prison, though, he wrote Grace Abounding, which is his testimony of becoming a Christian. And it's wildly entertaining. He's a very funny and neurotic kind of guy. He speaks about, he was a non Christian, and he knew he was a non Christian, but he loved to hear the church bells. And so he would walk up to the church and listen to the bells, but then he thought, I'm a non-Christian. If that bell falls down, it's going to kill me, and I'll go straight to hell. I better back up. And so he backs up about 100 yards, and he says, you know, theoretically, that bell could still fall and roll and kill me. I better back up to my house. So he kept backing up, and finally he said, I better be in my house and just listen to them, because I'm going to die and go straight to hell. Well, he finally converts, and he writes a work that you probably have read, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's second only to best-selling Uh, uh, of the Bible. Um, It talks about Christian and his way journeying to the celestial city. Um, It's very interesting. It's sort of an allegory um, uh, about the Christian life. They meet people like Faithful, Mr. Worldly Wise Men, Mr. Talkative, Mr. Ready to Halt. My suggestion, if you do read it, if you've never read it and you buy it, buy an updated book version, a modern adapted version, otherwise you're going to be reading what sounds like Shakespeare because it's so old. Next, Wesley Brothers. We love our Wesley Brothers. They were traveling field preachers. Um, You may recognize them, you may not, but look at the hymns that they wrote. Charles Wesley, Chuck wrote 9,000 hymns in his lifetime, 9,000. Somebody estimated that's probably 50 lines of poetry for 50 years each day. Love divine, all love's excelling. Oh, for a thousand tongues, Christ the Lord is risen today. Easter doesn't come unless we sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hark the herald angels sing, Jesus lover of my soul. And can it be, to name a few? Well, Elizabeth Prentice. You may know her, you may not. She was a pastor's wife in New York City, prolific writer. She wrote the the lovely hymn, More Love to Thee. We still sing it today. She wrote this work of fiction, Stepping Heavenward, but it's, it's more than just a work of fiction. It is instructive for the Christian life. Elizabeth Elliot says of it, "'I do not hesitate to recommend it to men "'who need to understand the wives they live with, "'or to any woman who wants to walk with God.'" It's a beautiful story of a woman and her uh, spiritual journey. Charles Spurgeon, oh, Spurgeon. You know, I, I didn't grow up Baptist. But I found Spurgeon when I was in the army, and I started reading his sermons, and I thought I had found some sort of, you know, obscure preacher that no one knew about. Obviously, he's the prince of preachers. You know, one time D.L. Moody, the great preacher, he would get on Spurgeon because Spurgeon smoked cigars, um, and Moody thought it was a a horrible vice, but he said, hey, you know, you really shouldn't smoke. Um, And Spurgeon said, well, I only smoke, I don't smoke to excess. And Moody said, "Well, what's excess?" He says, "Well two at a time." He was incredibly witty, and his sermons are just so entertaining. Um, but more than that, he, he teaches the Bible in such an amazing way. If you don't have the treasury of, of David, I, I recommend it highly, it's 40 dollars on Amazon. It's three volumes of uh, it goes over all of the psalms. It's incredibly helpful if you're studying the psalms. And again, I'll have this up. There'll be a link to the Spurgeon Archive where you can read some of his sermons. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is quoted very often by our pastor, you'll remember. Um, And if your name were Clive Staples, you would go by C.S. as well. He's very interesting. Not everything he says is perfect. His theology is not perfect, but whose is. Um, But he has many works that are very interesting uh, lovely. The Chronicles of Narnia. I read those while I was still a non-Christian and then understood them fully later on. It's, it's not perfect theology, but it is a lovely little allegory of uh, the gospel. If you've never heard of Screw Tape Letters, I recommend it highly. It's a senior demon writing to his nephew um, who needs help tempting uh, the person he's in charge of. It's very instructive. Uh, Feinberg, everything he writes is golden. We've got to go on. Uh, R.C. Sproul, again, uh, one of my favorite theologians. Um, You can find lots of his sermons online. Last, Albert Moeller. Uh, If you don't know who Albert Moeller is, you should. He is uh, president of Southern Seminary. He's so smart, people think he's a cyborg. Um, But he... He was a, well, we don't have time to go in it. I'll, I'll post this, um, like I said, and you can read. But he's got a keen mind. He, he has such a, a, a wonderful pastor's heart. Um, it's unfathomable how much he understands. And you can listen to his podcast daily where he takes current events and gives you a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective on it. Uh, I encourage you to check, check out his podcast. Either start your day with it or, or end your day. Well, this is really the tip of the iceberg. Like I said, I had 50 names, and we barely got through 14. These are in the cloud as well. Testament to God's faithfulness, testament of Him still saving. I encourage you um, to pick up, pick up one of their books um, to read. And remember, I didn't, we didn't go over all these people to make us feel like schlubs, that, oh, they've accomplished so much. Because guess what? We read St. Augustine, and he's very accomplished. But guess what? We don't read Monica. Who's Monica? That was his mother. His mother was in the chain of faithfulness as well. We don't read her, but she has imparted her faithfulness to us in praying dearly for her son that he would be saved, in being an influence on him. Well, as we're running, as we're enduring, we hear the crowd, but we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Think about that joy set before him, the completed work of Christ in our own lives. This is the kindness of the Lord. This is the goodness of the Lord.